0: As Robin said in the run up to Easter, what we're going to do during these morning services is look through Matthew's account of the last hours of Jesus' life. And what Matthew does as he records these events is not merely to note down the facts as they happened, but rather he records them in such a way to teach us. He wants to teach us what the purpose of Jesus' coming was, he wants to teach us what the heart of the gospel is the heart of the good news of Jesus, is all about. And we'll see that central to that gospel for Matthew and for us here today is the cross of Jesus. Now, uh, this passage that we are going to look at this morning takes place on the eve of Jesus', Jesus uh, crucifixion as he prays in a garden called Gethsemane. And as Jesus contemplates the cross, in this garden. I think that we get perhaps one of the clearest pictures of what actually happened in the cross, probably even more so than when Matthew actually records the crucifixion itself. It's really, uh, it's really no overstatement for me to say that this passage has to be one of the most breathtaking passages in all of scripture. And it's a timely message for us today because we need to see that this is what we are all about as a church. This gospel is what we proclaim. This gospel is what we will continue to proclaim. This gospel is what lies right at the heart of our fellowship. And I know that for some of you here this morning, when we talk about the cross of Jesus, the cross has become uh, almost formulaic. It's just become a means to an end. Uh, For some of you, it doesn't affect you like it used to. And that's why when we sing songs like we just sang, they're really powerful because we want to recapture the wonder and the impact and the power that the cross has had and continue to have. And I pray that actually as we look at this passage, you will feel the power and the wonder of the cross. And for some of you here today, to be honest, the cross of Jesus just doesn't mean anything to you. And well, I hope that as we look through this passage, you'll see why this is central to everything that we believe as a church, why this is central to the gospel, and why it is wonderful, as we have just been singing. So let's turn and read the passage. Um, it's Matthew chapter 26, it's on page 997 of the Blue Church Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read from verse 36 through to 46. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There are some moments in life where you've got to make a big decision. A big decision that will radically determine what your future will be. Will I marry this person? Should I accept this job? Should we start having kids? These are big events that do determine what your future will be and what decision you make in that moment can have massive consequences. Well, in the history of humanity, there has been two monumental events in which not only the fate of an individual, but the fate of the entire human race has hung in the balance. And both these events took place in a garden. The first began way back at the beginning of time when God created the first human being, Adam, and he placed them in the garden with his wife, Eve. And he told Adam and Eve to obey him. And if they did obey him, they would have life and fellowship with him. But what we read in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve chose rather to serve themselves and they disobeyed God and rebelled against their maker. And as such, the entire human race was placed under the curse of God. And we, by our nature, are rebels against God, choosing to ignore him, choosing to serve ourselves. That is our default nature. And it means that, by default, we are alienated from our Creator. That's why there's wickedness, that's why there's brokenness, and that's why there's suffering in this world. The first event in the Garden of Eden done by our father Adam, has meant that we are all cursed and under God's judgment. But we read in Matthew 26 is another event in a garden where humanity's fate is hanging in the balance. This time instead of Adam we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, thinking on the task that God the Father has given him. Jesus has come for this moment. He has come into human history to undo what Adam has done. He has come to reconcile us, to take us back to God. And if he obeys God, if he does his Father's will, it will mean that salvation will be made possible for everyone. And reconciliation will be available to all mankind. If he doesn't, then there's no hope for us. The cross, which is now starting to loom on the horizon of Matthew's gospel, is where the salvation is going to be achieved. But it's here in Gethsemane that we can see what is going to happen at the cross and how that salvation will be possible. And as we look through this, I want us to feel the power of the cross, the power of what is actually happening here. And I want to bring out three points from this passage in Gethsemane that I think emphasise what Jesus is about to do on the cross. Three points you'll see them on the back of your service sheet there. Three points that help us to understand Gethsemane. Three points that help us to understand what Jesus did on the cross. The first thing we need to see about this passage is the torment of the cup. Jesus goes to the garden and he prays to his Father and notice that the sheer Anguish that Jesus is feeling. In verse 37, we see that that he is sorrowful and troubled. And those words in English don't really seem to, to do justice to the anxiety he's feeling. Because look at what he says in verse 38 My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus isn't just feeling a little bit sad, he's not feeling just a little bit worried. But the anxiety that he faces at this moment as he prays is so great that it almost kills him. Something terrible is happening in the garden. Something terrible is happening to Jesus here. Something that forces him to fall to his knees in agonising stress. And nowhere in the Gospels Nowhere does Jesus reach this depth of anguish. In fact, all throughout Matthew, he's he's been completely the opposite. That's what's so striking about this passage. Matthew previously has been showing us that that Jesus is this confident, powerful, messianic king. He's performing these, these great wonders, these great miracles. He's teaching with all power, with all authority. So what is happening in Gethsemane? takes the king of kings who has existed from all eternity and throws him to the ground in anguish. It's not the fact that he's going to die. That's not what's tormenting Jesus in this dark hour. There have been many martyrs throughout the history of the church who actually probably have died worse deaths than what Jesus faced on the cross. And yet they've done so... Not with the anguish or the anxiety that Jesus faces here, but we read of stories of people doing it with great confidence, with great inner peace and tranquility. But there's no no inner peace in Gethsemane. Something different, something horrible, something so unimaginable that it can take the eternal Son of God who created the universe and throw him to his knees in torment. It's not the thought of death, but as we see in the passage, it's the cup. That's what's doing this to Jesus. Look at what he prays there in verse 39 of the passage. My father, he says, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. The cup, that is the source of Jesus' torment. Now to us it sounds strange. What does he mean by that? But to the original Jewish readers of Matthew's Gospel, this would have been unbelievably shocking. Because the cup in the Old Testament, the cup throughout the Bible actually, is always used as a symbol of God's wrath and anger. So just as an example of this, just to see why this throws Jesus to the ground, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25 from verse 15. It's on page 785. <coughs> Jeremiah 25:15. This is what God says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing. As they are today. That's what the cup is. It's God's fury and God's wrath. Which Jeremiah describes. And which Isaiah and Ezekiel both describe. As being so immense. That it just levels nations. And that cup. Is what Jesus. Is about to drink on the cross. That cup. Is what he is praying about. As he is in Gethsemane. And the very thought of it crushes him. But the reason he'll do it is because this is how he is going to save us. Because the cup of God's wrath that he is about to drink is the wrath that we deserve. All the, all the wrongdoing that we've done in life, all our vile thoughts and words and deeds That's what alienates us from God. God cannot let any form of evil go unchecked or unpunished because he is a good God. He is a holy God. But rather than us facing the wrath we deserve, God has found a way to make us right and still punish our sin. And it's by Jesus stepping into our place and drinking the cup of the wrath that we deserve. Jesus here is contemplating having to face the wrath of God. He's contemplating being ripped out of that love of God the Father that he has known for all eternity. Being torn away from that. Do you see what our salvation will cost? You see, Jesus in Gethsemane, he stands on the edge of the furnace of God's fury and he gazes straight down into its terror and he knows that if we are to be saved from it, he has to be cast into it. That's what levels the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, if the mere contemplation of the cross is doing this to Jesus, imagine the horror of when it actually did happen. I can't can't illustrate what happens in the garden because there's nothing like this. There's no event in history. There's, no, there's nothing in reality that is analogous to what is happening in this garden, to what Jesus is facing. No amount of suffering, no amount of anguish that we experience as a church or as individuals will come close to what Jesus is experiencing here in Gethsemane. If there is to be any hope of us being brought back to God, Jesus has to drink this cup This is what he has come to do. And here we see the second thing that's important to understand about Gethsemane. The obedience of Christ. The obedience of Christ. This was another striking thing about this passage. Although he is in agony as he contemplates the terror of the cross, nevertheless Jesus is still wholeheartedly committed to it. He's committed to doing his Father's will. Look at what he prays. If it is possible, take this cup away from me. In other words, the burden of this is so much that it's unbearable. But look at what he follows that with. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42. If it's not possible that this cup be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. Three times he prays. Father is, is there any other way that I can rescue these people? Is there any other way that I can do this without having to drink this cup? And there's just silence from heaven. Three times he prays for the cup to pass. Three times he is met with silence. Because there is no other way. And although the pain of this nearly kills him, he is determined to do his Father's will. May your will be done. See, Jesus is the perfect servant of God. Obedient to the will of his Father. Robin read at the start of the service, he read a, a, um, a bit from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 was written, it's fascinating, it was written over 500 years before Jesus came into human history, and yet it's all about Jesus. It's all about this moment. And in that passage, Isaiah tells us that the servant of God, Jesus, will be crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that has brought us peace will be laid on him. By his wounds we will be healed. Isaiah states that this will happen because it is the will of God to crush him. And to cause him to suffer. Because after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. See, if Adam had obeyed God, that first incident in the garden, if Adam had obeyed God, he'd have had life and fellowship with him. And yet he failed to do so. If Jesus obeys God... He'll be crushed and forsaken by him. And yet he does it. His obedience is infinitely greater than Adam's. His obedience is infinitely greater than ours. Whereas Adam's disobedience in the garden meant that we are placed under the wrath of God and alienated from him. Jesus' obedience in the garden means that we can be saved from the wrath of God and reconciled back to him. And don't think of Jesus here in Gethsemane. Don't think that Jesus is just some whipping boy. Jesus is not doing this against his will. Jesus is doing this because his will is to do the Father's will. And God's will, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the earth was created, God's will was that this would happen so that he could show to us his love for us. That's what Jesus is doing in the garden. His love for us and his obedience to his Father drive him to continue. He could have stopped. He could have said, why should I? There's no reason. He doesn't need to do this. God doesn't need us. There's nothing in us that is worthy of this moment. Nothing in us that is beautiful or worthy of salvation. Jesus could have said, why should I throw myself under the weight of divine wrath for them? He doesn't say that at all. He says to his father, your will be done. And in verse 46, after that tormentuous night, he rises from his last great temptation and he says to his disciples, rise, let us go. He is determined to do this. He will save us. Finally, Matthew I think, wants to emphasise and wants to show us just how much our salvation is dependent upon Jesus and not us by emphasising the third point, the failure of the disciples. The three men that follow Jesus into Gethsemane, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, these men are Jesus' closest followers and friends. And this is Jesus' greatest moment of need. You know, when we go through anxiety or trouble, we like to have friends there to help us get through this. And actually, I think Jesus brings these guys along to help them. Pray for me, support me, guys, help me out. And what do they do? They sleep. You know, James and John, it's really interesting, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, James and John in Matthew chapter 20, I think, uh, said to Jesus that we will drink the cup that you are going to drink. They had no idea what they were saying, but they were trying to show to Jesus, look, we, are, we will be committed to you. We are wholeheartedly committed to following you and your gospel. And actually, look at that little section before Gethsemane. Do you notice what that's about? Peter emphasizing his commitment to Jesus. After Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me, look at what Peter says in verse 35. Even if I have to die... I will never disown you. The three men with Jesus in the moment of his greatest need and torment are his most committed followers. And what Matthew shows us is just how much they fail. Jesus goes to them and he asks for their help. Verse 40. He says to Peter, that ultra-committed disciple, He says to couldn't you men just keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You see, there is there is a willingness there. There's, there's a willingness behind what Peter's doing, behind what Peter's saying. I will not disown you, Lord. I mean, how many of us have, have heard a sermon that we found particularly invigorating, that we found uh, particularly renewing, and we've left from that talk, we've left from that sermon thinking, right, I'm not going to sin again. I'm not going to do that sin that I've been indulging in. I'm going to throw that aside and I'm going to be absolutely committed to following Jesus in every area of my life. And then it's not long before well, we fail. We can try to be consistently loyal. You know, you get up, you're determined to have a quiet time every morning and then suddenly you find that that Quiet time just becomes a bit too quiet. And we're dozing. You see, Matthew's showing us ourselves in these disciples. You could have the the right motives and, and the willingness, but our loyalty will falter. But do you see what's happening here in the garden? What's happening here is not dependent upon the disciples' loyalty. Look at their loyalty. Look at their commitment. It's not brilliant. This is the creme de la creme of humanity. This is the foundation of the church right here, sleeping. When it comes to our salvation, the disciples do nothing. When it comes to our salvation, we do nothing. We are completely useless for salvation. No matter what you do, even the most committed follower of Jesus will be a sleepy weakling. But it never was about us. That's what gets him and he's showing us. This is Jesus' mission. Only he can drink this cup. And as he falls to his knees in the anguish of his prayer, the very people he is dying for, his loyalist followers, have failed him. And the cup of wrath he is about to drink, he will drink for those who fail him. I want to wrap this up by taking this all together and ask, what do we do with a passage like this, with Gethsemane? Often when we hear a passage priest, we want to know, well, well, what should I do now, preacher? What's the application? What should I do in light of this? I would say, be careful of such thinking. Application is not just about what we do. It's also about what we know. And Matthew's telling us this, not so that we can do something, He's not giving us an example of prayer, though we have a perfect example. He's not giving us an example of obedience, though we do have that. But Matthew's telling us so that we can know the cross, so we can know what Jesus did on that cross. He wants to emphasize the seriousness of our sin, but the seriousness of God's love. when you look at what happens in the garden, when we look at this passage, don't just read it as mere history or as just some uh, sort of abstract thing, but actually see how you yourself fit into this passage. Because do you realise that that's your cup that Jesus is about to drink? That's the punishment and the wrath that you deserve that he sees in all its ferocity. Those wretched acts of of self-centeredness, those sins of, of lust and anger and gossip and pride, those things done in the secrecy of your heart, those wicked thoughts, those deceitful words, those vile deeds that you have done in life, all God's anger for every single one of them, big and small, has all been mingled together in this one cup that Jesus is about to drink for you. And it crushes him. That's the wrath that I deserve that's done that to Jesus in Gethsemane. That me that has done that to him. Jesus says in verse 45 to his disciples, The Son of Man is delivered today into the hands of sinners. And don't think that Jesus is just talking about the people who arrested him. He's talking about all of us here today. Why is he in this agony? Why is he under this pressure? Why is he bearing this unimaginable horror? Because of you and me. It's because of us. It's because of our sin that he is required to be there at that moment. We could say that we are the ones who killed Jesus because it's our sin that required him to be on that cross. It's our sin that drove those nails into his hands. But although it shows us, Gethsemane, the seriousness of our sin, look, what, look at how God hates it and look at what it's done to his son. Gethsemane also shows us the seriousness of God's love. Such an act of love has not been seen anywhere else in the world. No one, no matter how close they are to you or how precious they are to you, no one can love you like this. No one has ever done something like this for you. Jesus drinks that cup to its bitterest dregs, all the wrongdoing, the past, the present, the future, all that has been dealt with. And you see what a powerful act of love that is. He does it because he loves us. God loves us. He wants us to be back to him. He wants to undo what Adam has has done. He wants to undo all the the rebellious nature that we have in our hearts. This is not some sentimental, wishy-washy love. This is a real, powerful, radical display of costly love. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what he offers you today. The cup of God's wrath doesn't go away because you ignore it. If Jesus doesn't drink it, you will have to. And look at what it did to him. But he offers to deal with your wrongdoing. So trust him. And as a follower of Jesus, as, as Christians, we cannot... What's great about this passage is we can't look at at Gethsemane and question, well, does God love me or not? We can feel far from him. We can feel ashamed because of what we do. We can feel ashamed because we're constantly indulging in sin that we don't want to do. And we want to give more honour to God. But do you really think that will stop Jesus loving you after what we've just read? can't question whether Jesus loves us or not because look at what he's doing for us. No matter what we do in life, we can't undo what's happening here in Gethsemane. It's not about us. And praise God that the gospel's not about us. The good news of Jesus is not about us. It's not about uh, this church. It's always been about Jesus. We are sleepy weaklings, but here we have one who is strong where our flesh, our body is weak. What a savior we worship, and what good news we have to tell others about. His cross, with his free offer of salvation, is what will always be at the heart of this church. It's what unites us, it's what drives us, it's what motivates us, because this is wonderful news. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That Jesus has come to to drink the wrath that we deserve. Lord, even when we try our best, we fail. And yet He drinks the cup of wrath for those who fail. Thank you that Jesus drank it all. That if we are followers of Jesus, we can say with all honesty and sincerity, although we may not feel it, that We don't fear any condemnation. We don't fear any judgment. We don't fear any wrath because Jesus has removed it. And here we see him in the garden and what it did to him. Father, help us to understand Gethsemane so that we can see both the seriousness of our sins and the seriousness of his love. May the truth of the gospel drive us further into your arms, Lord. May it be central, this cross, this message of salvation. May it be central to all that we do and continue to do here as a church and may it be central to our lives as individuals. Father, may the message of Gethsemane, the message of the cross, not drift from our minds this week, but help us to be um, recaptured by the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, thank you that we have a gospel we have good news to proclaim. Help us to grow each day in the knowledge and understanding of what our Saviour has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.